Hello, and welcome to Words on Film, the spoken word podcast dedicated to moving pictures. I'm Dan Burke, your host and movie critic, and I'm here to tell you exactly what I think of some of the latest movies out right now. For today's show, I have three movies to review for you. One of them is brand new. I tried to get another brand new movie in there, but I had an issue with my car this week involving some nails that were in my tire, and I needed to get the tire replaced. So unfortunately, I did not get to review one of the big movies that came out this week for you for this show. However, I will probably review it for you on next week's show, but... I'm going to start with the newest film that's bound to have people talking this week. The first movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Asteroid City. This is the latest from director Wes Anderson and co-writers Wes Anderson and Roman Coppola. It is very distinctive of Wes Anderson in the the way that he films, but it's also distinctive in the fact that it has a very, very big roster of of all-stars in the film. It also has some unknowns that do a pretty good job here, but it's pretty amazing the roster of actors that Wes Anderson was able to round up together for this film. A lot of actors in this film have, have been in Wes Anderson films before, like Edward Norton, Willem Dafoe, and that's just to name a few. Jason Schwartzman's another one, since Jason Schwartzman gets top billing. But there are some other noteworthy actors who to my knowledge, have not been in other Wes Anderson films before, like Tom Hanks, Jeffrey Wright, Brian Cranston, and the list goes on. But they all come together in this film, which follows a writer on his world-famous fictional play about a grieving father who travels with his tech-obsessed family to small rural asteroid city to compete in a junior stargazing event only to have his worldview disrupted forever. And also, rather typical of Wes Anderson films as of late, even though Jason Schwartzman's character, who is a writer and an amateur photographer, is given top billing, he's not exactly front and center in terms of the attention that's given to the characters in this film. Brian Cranston plays somebody by the name of Host, and he is the host of a fictional TV show in the in the 50s, kind of reminiscent of Rod Serling or Don Pardo or one of those announcers, probably more like Rod Serling. And he pops up at various times to give exposition. Edward Norton plays a struggling playwright by the name of Conrad Earp, who is writing about Asteroid City. So Brian Cranston, Edward Norton, and a few other actors in the film set up the framework of this story, which I would probably say isn't really a story. It's a lot of random things that happen. And that's very typical of Wes Anderson films. As a matter of fact, I've seen most of Wes Anderson's movies. He's He comes out with a movie probably about every two to five years. And whenever he does, whether the film is live action or animated, it's bound to get a lot of people's attention. As a matter of fact, I believe that every single movie he's released up to this point has been released in the Criterion Collection. A lot of directors actually have to work really hard to get into the Criterion Collection. Yeah, the Criterion Collection. But Wes Anderson kind of seems to get in there sort of automatically. But it's very easy to see why. The last Wes Anderson film that came out before Asteroid City was The French Dispatch, which came out two years ago. And I think largely because of the fact that I didn't subscribe to many streaming channels and we were still in the midst of the pandemic at that point, and movie theaters were just very slowly opening up, I didn't get to see The French Dispatch, although I really wanted to. The last movie that I saw directed by Wes Anderson was the animated movie Isle of Dogs, which had a great stop-motion animation style, which is kind of typical even of some of Wes Anderson's live-action films. For example, The Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou was mostly live-action, but there were some moments where there were animated characters. But unlike Fantastic Mr. Fox and Isle of Dogs, it wasn't completely animated. But Asteroid City has some surprising moments of animation that serve as some of the best parts of this film. So I did mention Jason Schwartzback's 
excuse me, Jason Schwartzman's character, uh, whose name is Augie Steenbeck, which is how I completely screwed up Jason Schwartzman's last name uh, up to this point. But there are so many other characters, and they do have various connections, that I would probably exhaust myself if I were to tell you how each and every character relates to one another. But this movie, Asteroid City, deals a lot with some themes about the 1950s. For example, America now living under the threat of nuclear war and how that affects average people. Also, the rise and interest of science fiction and maybe the beginning of the advent of a new kind of technology or technologies. And all those themes weave into Asteroid City very well. But as I was watching this film, I appreciated how original the film was. I had a slight appreciation for how deadpan everyone was because I'm so used to that in Wes Anderson films, whether they be live action or animated. Deadpan is kind of Wes Anderson's style, and everyone who's seen a Wes Anderson film is used to it if they don't exactly appreciate it. But the movie, I think, has some weaknesses that don't really put it in Wes Anderson's category of best films like Rushmore or the Grand Budapest Hotel. For example, there is that narrative framework where Brian Cranston plays the host of this fictional TV series, and there's focus on Edward Norton's character who's writing the story within a story here that uh, that compromises the fictional city of Asteroid City, which takes place somewhere in the Pacific Southwest, somewhere in the desert of New Mexico, Arizona, Nevada, maybe even California, somewhere around there. But one thing I didn't like about the film was the way that it set up the the story here. And the, and the story you really have to, to dig around to see because it's not really one of those conventional Hollywood stories, which I appreciate. But what I didn't like was when it was set up with title cards Act 1, scene 6 through 9, or Act 2, scene 5 through 10. Because that, I think, dragged the pace of what what semblance of a, a story there was. And I didn't really care for that very much. Because once I saw that title card, which was Act 1, scene whatever, it took me out of the story a little bit. And it made me feel like this was a bit more time-consuming to watch this film rather than having me go into the story. But once the title cards were out and I was actually invested in some of the characters and their quirky character arcs, that's when I appreciated the story very much. But I think especially in the world we're living in right now where people are tired of the superhero stories and I'm not saying that I'm one of these people. I'm not. I appreciate a good story whether it's whether it has superheroes or not. But people are experiencing superhero fatigue and some of the lesser superhero movies that are coming out are beginning to be a little bit more redundant and formulaic in terms of its story. Here is a movie that sort of bucks the traditional storytelling. And I can certainly appreciate that, especially in a day and age where a lot of people are complaining that Hollywood is running out of ideas. Hollywood may be running out of ideas, but Wes Anderson certainly is not. And that's probably the big reason why he's able to attract such Academy Award nominated and Academy Award winning talent like Scarlett Johansson, Tom Hanks, Jeffrey Wright, Brian Cranston, Steve Carell, Matt Dillon, and the list goes on. And there are a bunch of names that I'm leaving out of this review. And the reason is because I really don't have time to go into each and every person's role in this film. But what I really appreciated about Asteroid City is not only its originality, but also its use of seemingly archaic special effects and some surprising moments in this, like Wes Anderson's putting in some unexpected stop-motion animation, which is quirky and also represents some of the best parts of this film. So, as I was watching Asteroid City, 
I was kind of disappointed in the fact that the story sometimes seemed to drag, and sometimes the story seemed to be random and often at other times non-existent. But I do give Wes Anderson the benefit of the doubt in the sense that there is madness in this film. It's deadpan madness, but it's still madness nonetheless. But I still give Wes Anderson the benefit of the doubt in the sense that he's original enough that I believe that there is some method to some of his deadpan madness as well. So while I didn't love Asteroid City the same way that I loved Rushmore, the Royal Tenenbaums, the Grand Budapest Hotel, or Isle of Dogs, I still think it's a noteworthy addition to Wes Anderson's repertoire, which is why I give Asteroid City my rating of a marginal knockout, because I appreciate its originality. I really thought the cast worked together very well. They embraced the deadpan and the quirky kind of humor. And even though I had some hangups about this film, which may not have me recommended as strongly as some of the other Wes Anderson films that I mentioned, I still appreciate it very much. And my, and also it's not an, a forgettable movie. I don't think Wes Anderson has made a forgettable film to date. And Asteroid City is an addition to his repertoire that makes his vision unforgettable. And that I can certainly appreciate. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is a film that's called Past Lives. This is a film that is a romantic drama that was written and directed by Celine Song, who is an American-Korean director. And this movie, Past Lives, is actually her directorial debut not just for feature films, it's the first film she's ever directed, and actually, she's off to a great start when it comes to her directing films. And Past Lives is a film that feels, if not autobiographical, semi-autobiographical, but I can't make any assumptions or any real assumptions about whether or not it is semi-autobiographical, but it's a film that feels very true to life. And I think probably Celine Song's past as a Korean immigrant might have influenced this story. And especially since she wrote the story and the screenplay herself, it's probably not going to uh, it's probably not too much of a stretch of an assumption, but it's still an assumption nonetheless. But Past Lives actually had its world premiere at this year's Sundance Film Festival on January 21st, 2023, and it was released in the United States um, in wide distribution or as wide as an independent film like this would be on June 2nd, 2023. And this is a film that I just got around to seeing last weekend as it opened in Nashville last weekend. But anyway... The movie tells the story about Nora and Hei Sung, who are, do, who are two deeply connected childhood friends who are rest apart after Nora's family emigrates from South Korea. Twenty years later, they are reunited for one fateful week as they confront notions of love and destiny. And while I try not to get too much into the story here, but this uh, film actually opens on these two characters, as well as another white American um, by the name of Arthur, who are sitting at a bar while an unseen couple who are American are sort of people watching them and are actually wondering what relationship they are to one another. And as the audience, you're probably wondering that as well. And then the movie jumps back 24 years earlier in South Korea. And by 24 years earlier, this takes place in 1999, where there is a girl by the name of Na Young and a boy by the name of Hae Sung, who are classmates in junior high who walk home together every day. 
And Na Young's family, uh, who and Na Young's father is actually a film director, eventually emigrates from South Korea to Canada, and she eventually changes her name to the more Americanized Nora. And Na Young and Hae Sung actually go out on uh, one semblance of a date, or as much of a date as you would think that kids in junior high would probably have. In other words, it's more like a play date than it is an actual date. But 12 years later, this is in 2001, Hey Sung has finished his military service and Nora has immigrated from Canada to New York City and is a college student in a very prestigious university, which is not mentioned, but it's presumably... Columbia University, but it could be a number of other universities in New York City. But anyway, eventually they reconnect by way of Facebook. And that actually makes me kind of wonder, that might not be accurate what I just said, that they reconnect 12 years later because Facebook actually wasn't even created until 2003, not 2001. But in any event, they do eventually reconnect and you learn that Sung has experienced a breakup and the former Na Young, who's now uh, Nora, is single and also aspiring to be a writer. But eventually they connect by way of Facebook, and you can sort of tell that Hey Sung is sort of reevaluating his life after this breakup and is wondering if this one play date he went on back when they were both in South Korea was actually meaning anything. And I could certainly relate to Sung's curiosity, especially w- with how technology has evolved over the last 25 years and relationships are not quite the same as they used to be, r- whether they be long-distance relationships or not. And the movie eventually brings us to present day where Nora is... Now actually a writer, and not only that, but she's also married to an American. And then Sung comes back into her life. And the way the movie progresses and tells this love story between the two of them is pretty amazing. And it's, it's a movie that is part Korean and part English in its languages. And it's it's amazing how the two balance out. Some people might be annoyed, particularly American audiences, with how much they have to read the bottom of the screen. But there are some scenes that don't involve language at all that are surprisingly poignant, both in the way that the actors look and also the way that the camera shows what they're looking at. And I forgot to mention the the names of the actors. Nora, the former Na Young, is played by Greta Lee, and Hei Sung is played by T.O. Yu. And they have a believable amount of chemistry together. I'm not necessarily saying that that is romantic chemistry, but I am saying that it is very believable chemistry, whether it's on a romantic level or on a friendship level. But when... Nora's husband, Arthur, who's played by John Magaro, who I've previously seen in Orange is the New Black, comes into the picture. You begin to think, is this going to be a movie about a love triangle or is it about something that was never meant to be? And the movie does have you guessing. And the way that the dialogue is written and the way that the Uh, characters, particularly these three principal characters, relate to each other is quite amazing. It it feels less like you're watching a scripted, dramatized movie and more like you're watching a documentary, except maybe it's even more like you're watching spy cameras, because at least with documentaries, the subjects actually know they're being taped. Here, there is no spiking the camera at all, and it's, it's really amazing. This is This is an incredible debut for such a beginning filmmaker, and this is probably the the film that film students wish they could direct right off the bat. It doesn't really happen all the time with debut filmmakers, but 
it's a really great start to what looks like a very prolific film career for Celine Song, both as a director and as a writer, but primarily and probably wholly as a filmmaker, which is why I give Past Lives my rating of a knockout. It is a very prolific film. It's very heartbreaking in certain scenes. It also can be surprisingly funny in some of its awkward moments. But Past Lives is a film that runs relatively long at one hour, 45 minutes. Not the longest movie in the world, obviously. But there are some moments where the, the film lags a little bit. But in those lagging moments, there are some very poignant moments. Just make sure you get plenty of rest before seeing this film. But once you actually see the film, I'm sure you'll be taken in by it. I know I certainly was. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Book Club, the next chapter. This is a film that opened in theaters on May 12th, 2023, so it took me a little while to get to reviewing this film for you. But this is the sequel to the 2018 movie Book Club, which starred Jane Fonda, Diane Keaton, Candace Bergen, and Mary Steenburgen. These are four women who have been acting in films since the 60s and have been household names since the 70s. And once they have gotten together in one movie, you definitely believe from the first film they were lifelong friends. But for some reason, even though Book Club, the next chapter, ties in certain themes from which we've all been living, like, for example, being separated in the pandemic it does the the sum of the movie does not equal ultimately the sum of its parts and once it gets through some of the timely issues with which we've all been dealing as citizens of earth it doesn't really seem to know where to go from there and book club brings back bill holderman as the director and co-writer who wrote this film along with aaron sims and one of the probably biggest things that doesn't work for book club. The next chapter is the fact that these four women come together again, but they don't come together by way of a book club. In other words, there's not a book they're reading like in the original book club where they're all reading 50 shades of gray. And I, I did have one chief complaint with the movie book club in that Jane Fonda said about 50 shades of gray 50 million readers can't be wrong. <laughs> well, maybe they're not wrong about 50 shades of gray. If, if that's your kind of book, if you get a rise out of reading that book, then that's all you, if you get a rise out of seeing the movie, then that probably, I would probably have an opinion about that, but I would of course keep that opinion on the show. I would not publicly chastise you, even though I kind of want to, but here these four best friends in the movie Book Club, the next chapter, um, take their book club to Italy for the fun girls trip they never had. The reason they go to Italy is because one of the women in this movie is actually getting married. And the four friends take a bachelorette trip to Italy, culminating in a destination wedding in Tuscany. So at first they stay in Rome, and even though some of them are married, they do some man-watching, and they also shop for one of the characters' uh, wedding gowns. And eventually, as the movie goes on, this feels more like a film where the cast, crew, and the director wanted to take a vacation rather than... rather than, you know, actually make a movie with a story. And there are some funny parts that happen, but there are some other kind of forced slapstick moments that had their place in book club, but 
made sense in the context of the first movie. Here in the second movie, there the the slapstick feels a little contrived, especially when one of the characters has a deceased husband whose urn she's carrying and she's trying to deposit her her husband's ashes somewhere. And the way that plot develops itself is kind of stupid and altogether not very memorable. And then as the movie progresses towards the end, when this wedding finally happens, the wedding is a bit of a letdown too, because you don't really exactly know whether or not the characters who are getting married actually want to get married. They seem to do this wedding more for this trip uh, to Italy, this very exotic trip, than because they're in love. But the way that the wedding kind of resolves itself isn't very funny. It's certainly one of those things we've seen in other movies before. And some of the other quote-unquote surprises in this film as well aren't surprises because they're very predictable. We've seen them in many other movies before. And very much like 80 for Brady, Jane Fonda gets along so well with her uh, co-stars here, It's it feels less like they're co-stars and more like they're friends. But I felt that chemistry more in the first book club, and I felt that a lot more in the film 80 for Brady than I did with this film. This film felt like both a vacation combined with contractual obligation, which is why I give Book Club, the next chapter, my rating of a strikeout. I don't think it's badly acted. I don't think it's badly filmed, but... Again, it's not as good as the original because the basis of this group is not wine, it's books. But why didn't they read a book? Why didn't they read something about going to Italy? Like, for example, that very famous part in Mario Puzo's The Godfather where Michael Corleone goes to Italy. That would have been a discernible plot point to get this film going. But instead, we get another film where it's forced slapstick, very predictable surprises that ultimately are not surprises at all, and a sort of plot developments of these four characters that we've seen before. So Book Club, the next chapter, is kind of worth putting back on the shelf and actually getting another book to read instead. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. And I gotta be honest with you, I've reviewed all the films that I have to review for you for this show. I was really, really, really hoping to review one particular film that was brand new the weekend that I am recording this podcast. And that movie was No Hard Feelings. No Hard Feelings was a film that I probably would have had a lot to say. I'm not guaranteeing that I would have loved the film. I I can't really say that because movies are good until proven bad in my book, but I still have to see the film in order to make a proper assessment of it. But I did not get to see that because of car troubles I was having, and I'm really kind of miffed that I didn't get to see it. However, I will shoot to review that film for you next weekend. First of all, because I meant to review it for you this weekend, but secondly, because in my segment, what's coming up next, there aren't very many films that are coming out this coming weekend. The weekend being June 30th, 2023 through July 2nd, 2023, which is the weekend before the 4th of July, which I would probably uh, qualify as July 4th weekend, which should be a big weekend for movies. And even though there aren't many films that are coming out this weekend, the two movies that I see that are subject to being released 
are going to be probably huge. The biggest film that's going to be coming out this weekend, June 30th, is a film that's called Indiana Jones, The Dial of Destiny. This is the first Indiana Jones film in 15 years, and Harrison Ford is reprising his role as the indie we all know and love. Now, a lot of people were disappointed back in 2008 about Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, and I do not blame them for being disappointed, because even though you had Harrison Ford coming back as uh, Indiana Jones, uh, and you had Steven Spielberg coming back uh, as a director, it's a film that disappointed a lot of people, especially considering how nearly perfect the original Indiana Jones trilogy was. Now, this movie, Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny, as I said, has Harrison Ford coming back as Indy, and it also has Karen Allen reprising her previous role as Marion, who is Indy's love interest in Raiders of the Lost Ark, as well as the last Indy movie. But Steven Spielberg is actually not coming back as director. This is the very first Indiana Jones film that Steven Spielberg is not directing. Why Steven Spielberg chose to sit this one out, I don't exactly know. But James Mangold is going to be directing this one. And the movie has Indiana Jones racing against time to retrieve a legendary artifact that can change the course of history, which kind of sounds similar to Raiders of the Lost Ark in its premise, but we'll see if it sounds like that in its execution. But James Mangold is not nearly as big a household name as Steven Spielberg, but he still has directed some very good films over the last couple of years. For example, he actually made his directorial debut in 1995 with a film that was called Heavy. And Heavy is a film you've probably never heard of, but the movie starred some surprisingly big names. Um, the star of the film was Pruitt Taylor Vince, who is a who is a veteran character actor, but he's not a household name. But the movie also starred Liv Tyler, Shelley Winters, and Debbie Harry, amongst some other people. So those are huge names. But that movie was sort of like a dramatized Marty. It was about an overweight, unhappy cook who actually befriends a beautiful college dropout. Liv Tyler plays that college dropout who comes to work at the restaurant as a waitress. And there is a friendship that develops between the two of them that might develop into romance, but as the movie progresses, you're not entirely sure. It was a good entity film, and James Mangold followed that uh, as a director with... Uh, okay, I, I found the director part of my website. With some other very good films like Copland, Girl Interrupted. He directed Walk the Line, the Johnny Cash biopic, which won an Academy Award. He also directed the remake of 310 to Yuma, which was well-received when it came out, but didn't quite um, have the sort of lasting legacy that the original 310 to Yuma had. He also directed The Wolverine and Logan, both of which starred Hugh Jackman as the titular Logan slash Wolverine. And the film he directed before Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny was Ford versus Ferrari, which starred Matt Damon and Matthew McConaughey. And that was a film that came out before the pandemic. And I did not get a chance to see that. So I can't vouch for how good a film that was, but it was nominated for a number of Academy Awards, including Best Picture. But James Mangold is certainly not a bad replacement for Steven Spielberg, and he's directed a number of very noteworthy films, but he has some very, very big shoes to fill, despite the fact that he's been directing for almost 30 years. But Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny is a film that I rest assured will see, and I will let you know what I think on a future show, probably next weekend's show. Another film that's coming out in theaters on June 30th is a film that's called Ruby Gilman, Teenage Kraken. And this is kind of interesting. It's about a kraken, which is a fictional sea creature, very similar to the Loch Ness Monster, except 
dangerous. And this is a film that is brought to you by the people at Illumination Studios who brought us the Minions franchise amongst other noteworthy films. But this is a film about, oh, I'm sorry, correction. This is brought to you by DreamWorks, the company that brought us Shrek and other such animated films. And DreamWorks at first was a contender with Disney, but then their movies, their animated films kind of dipped in quality, especially after DreamWorks didn't become the independent film studio that it promised to be. But anyway, this movie, Rudy Gilman, Teenage Kraken, is about a shy adolescent who learns that she comes from a fabled royal family of legendary sea krakens and that her destiny lies in the depths of the waters, which is bigger than she could have ever imagined. The movie features such uh, voice talent as Jane Fonda, actually, who doesn't uh, voice uh, Ruby Gilman. Uh, an actress named Lana Condor does. Jane Fonda voices Grandmama, which is probably the first time that Jane Fonda is acting as a grandmother, which, to her credit, she has actually refused to do in live-action form for several decades. There was one film where she was a grandmother, and she w- she played the grandmother of Lindsay Lohan in a film called Georgia Rules, but that was probably the exception. Otherwise... Jane Fonda has played a free-willing woman in her 80s and all the power to her for playing such a role. But in any event, I'd be interested to hear how she does as this character. Other voice actors in the film include Tony Collette, Coleman Domingo, and Will Forte, amongst others. And these are some uh, notable uh, voice acting talent. As for Lana Condor, I don't actually know who she is, but considering she plays an adolescent, it's probably fitting that an adolescent would play an adolescent. But, And interestingly enough, I think that the villains in this film are mermaids. And that's pretty good timing considering that Disney released their moderately well-received live-action remake of The Little Mermaid a couple of weeks ago. So... I'm interested in seeing this film. Unlike the live-action remake of The Little Mermaid, Rudy Gilman, Teenage Kraken is an original story based on an original concept. And I don't believe that this film was based on any previous material like a comic book or an internet video or anything like that. According to my notes, this is an original concept Pam Brady wrote the story as well as co-wrote the screenplay with Kirk DiMico, Elliot DiGiuseppe, and Brian Brown. My apologies if I mispronounce any of those names, but Ruby Gilman, Teenage Kraken is a film that I will likely see, and I'll let you know what I think on a future show. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke, and I'm getting into my second part of what's coming up next, where I give you the films that are subject to being released on streaming for the week of June 26th through June 30th, 2023. And I'm going to start with Netflix because that is still the most popular streaming platform. It's it's here to stay, and I don't think it's going anywhere anytime soon. And th- one of the films that's going to be appearing on Netflix, but not premiering on Netflix, is The Imitation Game, which, believe it or not, came out nine years ago. And this is a film that tells you the true story of Alan Turing, who's played brilliantly here by Benedict Cumberpatch. And this film won one Oscar. It was nominated for several. It only actually won one Oscar, but man, what a what an excellent film this was. And the Oscar for which it won, just putting it out there, uh, 
and I, I really have to dig back to the memory banks here. It won for Best Adapted Screenplay. And also, it was nominated for Best Picture, Best uh, Lead Performance, Best Actor in a Leading Role, Benedict Cumberpatch, Best Actress in a Supporting Role, Kira Knightley, and Best Director, Morton Tildum. It's not going to be a movie I'm going to review for you on a future show because I've already seen it and I've already reviewed it. But if you um, want to check it out for yourself, it's going to be on Netflix beginning on June 26th, 2023. On Wednesday, June 28th, there are two Netflix originals that are going to be premiering. The first is a documentary that's called El Dorado, Everything the Nazis Hate. And I am all for seeing a film, whether fictitious or uh, real, that is about everything that the Nazis hate. And I actually have a description for you right here. It's about a glittery nightclub in 1920s Berlin, which becomes a haven for the queer community in this documentary exploring the freedoms lost amid Hitler's rise to power. So this is a documentary that thematically ties in very well with the plot of Cabaret. I'm very interested to see this because I got to tell you, not only do I love the movie Cabaret, but Cabaret is probably my favorite movie musical ever. It is an amazing film. If it hadn't been nominated the same year as The Godfather for Best Picture, it would have won. But it did win a slew of Academy Awards. For example, uh, Liza Minnelli won for Best Actress. Joel Grey won for Best Supporting Actor. It won for Best Adapted Screenplay. Bob Foss won for Best Director. And it won some other awards, too, uh, which I don't have time to get into. The only award that wasn't deserved, in my opinion, was Best Supporting Actor for Joel Grey. I think Al Pacino should have won for The Godfather, but Joel Grey still turned in an amazing... Uh, performance in that film and that was definitely the highlight of his career and it made him a household name in households that didn't just watch Broadway plays and Joel Gray definitely deserved that but anyway El Dorado Everything the Nazis Hate is a film that I would love to see I'm not guaranteeing that I will see it but I'll make my best effort and I will let you know what I think on a future show a dramatized movie that will be appearing on Netflix on Wednesday, June 28th, is a movie that's called Run, Rabbit, Run. And the name of the movie is certainly very familiar, but this is a film that I'm actually not entirely familiar with in terms of who directs it and who stars in it. The star of the film is Sarah Snook, who plays a fertility doctor who believes firmly in life and death, but after noticing the strange behavior of her young daughter, must challenge her own values and confront a ghost from her past. This sounds like a dark film that also is very, is potentially amazing, but I'm not going to say whether or not it will be because I have to see the film to make that assertion, but rest assured... It's a film that is a horror thriller film, not so much a drama, but certainly has dramatic elements as horror thriller, thriller films do. But it certainly sounds like a film that I will see. And if I do see it, I'll let you know what I think on a future show. And there is only one other film that's going to be appearing on Netflix on Friday, July 3rd, excuse me, June 30th. And it's not just going to be appearing, it's going to be premiering. The movie is called Nimona. It is a Netflix original, and I'm looking up the information for it right now. Nimona is actually an animated film, believe it or not. And Nimona is a film that features the voice acting talents of Reese Ahmed, Academy Award winner Reese Ahmed, Chloe Grace Moretz, Eugene Lee Yang, and Francis Conroy, amongst other people. Oh, also RuPaul is one of the voices. Yeah, there are, there are some notable, um, very talented actors who are providing cartoon voices here, maybe in some cases for the first time, because I don't think that RuPaul has ever voiced a character, an animated character in a film, but considering how dynamic a character actor RuPaul is, 
uh, th- this might be a welcome um, development for his acting career. But anyway, the movie Nimona is takes place in a futuristic medieval world where a knight is framed for a crime he didn't commit. And the only one who can help him prove his innocence is Nimona, who is a mischievous teen who happens to be a shape a shape-shifting creature he's sworn to destroy. And Chloe Grace Moretz actually voices the titular Nimona. And Chloe Grace Moretz, as of the date of this show, is 26 years old. But I think she has enough youthfulness in her voice that she's probably going to be voicing teenagers until she's probably in her (laughs) mid-30s. Um, but that's certainly, um, a good casting choice there. And I, and Chloe Grace Moretz is an actress who makes overall very good choices with her characters. The exception is movie 43, but I have the feeling that a lot of other actors, Chloe Grace Moretz included, were almost contractually forced to be put in that film. And fortunately, as far as I know, movie 43 didn't destroy any acting careers. Although there was a couple who acted in that film who later got divorced. But in any event, Nimona is a film that certainly looks interesting. And it's a film that I will seek out. I'm not guaranteeing that I'm going to see it. But I'll let you know what I think on a future show if I do, in fact, see it. On Apple TV+, Plus, there are no new films that are going to be premiering the week of June 26th through June 30th, so we'll skip that. There was actually a documentary that I keep forgetting to review for you on the show, and I should have reviewed it for you now, but I just realized that I forgot to review it for you. But moving on, uh, the week of June 26th through June 30th, there are going to be no Disney Plus original movies, although there are a number of movies that have premiered on... Disney Plus that I haven't actually got to review yet. There's the live action remake Peter Pan and Wendy, which I haven't heard very good things about, but maybe I'll review that on a future show. There's the Eva Longoria directed Flame and Hot, which I really should see. I I should have reviewed that, but time kind of got away from me. There's a documentary that's called Stan Lee, which I bet you can probably guess who, who that film's about. That premiered on Friday, June 16th. And on Friday, June 23rd, which was recent, there was a movie that premiered called World's Best. There are a lot of Disney Plus originals I need to catch up on, but regardless, I will eventually see those films and maybe I'll fit them in for you on a future show. We'll have to see. And on Hulu, I'm checking the growing repertoire of films that are going to be appearing on that platform. As far as movies go, there are no new films that are going to be premiering the week of June 26th through June 30th, but I was previously praising the Grand Budapest Hotel. That's actually going to be appearing on Hulu on Friday, June 30th, so see that one if you would like. There's also another film that's going to be appearing on the platform that's called Burial, and that, like the Grand Budapest Hotel, will be appearing on the platform on Friday, June 30th. Burial is a film that is a 2022 film, so it's new enough, I suppose. And it's about a small group of Russian soldiers who have the task of taking Hitler's discovered remains back to Stalin in Moscow. How this film got away from me, I don't exactly know. I can't guarantee that I'm going to see it, but I'll let you know what I think if I do on a future show. There's another film that is appearing on Netflix on June 30th. It is also a 2022 film, and the movie is called Linoleum. Unlike Burial, Linoleum has an all-star cast, and I guess you could consider this a Hulu original, even though the site that I saw doesn't count it as such. But it's the it's a movie about a host of a failing children's sh- science show who tries to fulfill his childhood dream of becoming an astronaut by building a rocket ship in his garage. And when he does that, a series of bizarre events occur that cause him to question his own reality. This is interesting. 
The movie stars Jim Gaffigan as this host of a failing children's science TV show. And his wife is played by Rhea Seahorn, who's best known for having played Kim Wexler on the celebrated TV series Better Call Saul. He was, uh, she was um, Bob Odenkirk's love interest, later wife, and later estranged wife. Maybe I'm sp- spoiling a little bit of Better Call Saul there, but that was an amazing show, and Rhea Seahorn acted incredibly well in that show as well. I've seen her in a few movies here and there, but not many. But the movie also co-stars Amy Hargreaves, Michael Ian Black, Tony Shalhoub, and others. And this is a film that certainly looks interesting, and Jim Gaffigan is probably getting his first starring role in such a film. And I would love to see this film. I'll probably put it on my list, but I can't guarantee that I'm going to see it because frankly, the movies that come out in theaters are usually my first priority. The films that come out on streaming take a second priority as well, especially on platforms to which I don't subscribe like Apple TV plus, for example. However, there is a film that I did see on Apple TV+. I forgot to put it on my list of films to review for you for this show. And what's even more bizarre about that is that I actually really liked the film that I uh, saw on Apple TV+. I didn't actually see it on Apple TV+. I saw it when it was released in theaters. And I'm not going to tell you what it is, but rest assured, I will review it on a future show. In fact, I will make it a point to put it on my list of films to review for you on next week's show. So I hope you stay tuned for that. Well, that's all the time I have for this episode of Words on Film. I always love talking about movies, and I hope you liked what you heard. If you did, please subscribe and rate the show and leave comments if you can. I would love to get your feedback, even if it's more criticism than praise. This has been Words on Film. I'm Dan Burke, and until my next episode, I'll see you at the movies.